listener. My name is Paul Rutherford, and welcome to this new episode of Head and Heart, a podcast by Probe Ministries. We are a Christian apologetics and worldview ministry. You can check out lots of free resources at our website, probe.org. Today, we're going to have a conversation about theistic evolution. This is the second in a series of three episodes about theistic evolution. Today, we're going to ask the question, is theistic evolution scientifically sound? Is theistic evolution scientifically sound? And we're going to focus on the science. And I have invited again Dr. Ray Boland to be in studio with me. Dr. Ray, glad you're here. Glad to be back. Welcome back again. You are a resident science expert mm-hmm. around here. You yep. have your PhD in molecular biology. Uh, you have multiple degrees other than your PhD, <laughs> yep. as well in science. So you're well-versed in it. You've been on staff with us for 48 years? 48 years, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> and you have lots Which of... Which means of- I'm really old. I wasn't going to say that. Longer than I've been on staff, that's for sure. Yeah, but I'm so glad that you're with us. You're going to, um, listener, you're going to get a lot out of this, talking about this hot topic of how do we reconcile as Christians the creation account that God made everything, when that seems so inconsistent with what the mainstream scientific community is saying, which is we are a result of blind random chance, is that mankind evolved from apes. That seems so inconsistent with that. And so theistic evolution can seem like a viable option as a way to compromise those two theories. But Dr. Bolin, you are a resounding critic of that. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we get into it any much more, uh, will you please, again, assuming that our listener hasn't listened to episode mm. one, but mm-hmm. you should, what is theistic evolution and set this up for us for the rest of our conversation? I've usually described theistic evolution as uh, a belief, basically, that God used naturalistic evolution as his means to create all the organisms that we see today. And theistic evolution is the term that's been used for for decades, but in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, they've started introducing a different term. With theistic evolution, evolution is the noun, and theism is just an adjective. So they've switched it to, to evolutionary creation. So creation is the noun, evolution is an adjective. I see. But... They're basically saying the same thing. Got it. So theistic evolution can also be called evolutionary creationism. Right. And they have their reasons for it, but at the end of the day, we're talking about the same thing. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And so you are yourself a critic of it, Uh and a lot of the content of the conversation you and I are going to have today comes from a book. Can you give us the title of the book we're going to be talking about? The title of the book is Theistic Evolution, A Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Critique. It has several editors. (laughs) Uh, Stephen Meyer is one of them. Mm -hmm. Wayne Grudem is another. J.P. Moreland. Yep. So mm-hmm. again, you got a scientist, a philosopher, and a theologian. Right. So that's right. That all that all checks out. That makes sense. It's a tome. It's a big book. Yep. I, I've read portions of it. It comes off real academic. Yes, it is. <laughs> I, I don't know if they intended it as a textbook, but these guys are well, all they, PhDs. They so. assumed it would be a resource tool, not necessarily something for casual reading. Okay. But each of the sections, scientific section, has two parts to it. Uh, but each of the each sections, there's four total, um, has about ten different articles or authors, and uh, wow, yeah. So they're they're not connected; they stand. Yeah, got it. Independently, got it. But it's also a big work. Yes, it's a it's a big work. And to be clear, listener, if you've never heard of this book, it is critical of theistic evolution. Yes, it is. So this is not the textbook for what is theistic evolution. This is the textbook criticizing the theory. Therefore, a scientific, philosophical, and theological critique. Indeed. Yes, thank you for pointing that out. So let's get into it, Dr. Bowen, especially mm-hmm. if our listener has already listened to episode one and is 
heard you say why this is not a viable theory mm-hmm. really for you mentioned for evolutionary reasons. Mm-hmm. So let's get more into that. Cause you're, you uh, have so much to say about scientifically criticizing this theory. Is theistic evolution scientifically sound? Oh, the simple answer is no, but okay. let me uh, uh, elaborate from the last, the previous program. Um, there are two, as I mentioned, two scientific sections for this critique. The first one simply deals with the theory of Darwinism or neo-Darwinism. Is it sufficient to explain how we got all life forms? The second scientific section, which I'm going to talk about more today, uh, focuses on this thing called universal common descent. If evolution is true, then whatever organism came about from the primordial soup, all organisms are descended from that. And so even in Darwin's Origin of Species, he he created the first what they called uh, phylogenetic tree. Where you, the the trunk is the one organism, then yes. branches start forming, and when you get to the outside leafy branches, that's where all the current organisms yes, are. Yes, the trees I know those; those so, were in my biology textbook in high school. Yes, they were. So there's yes, they were. Those are based on morphological characteristics or anatomical characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, again, when they were first done, nobody knew about genes and proteins, that sort of thing. So. This idea of a tree of life is necessary to evolution, and the idea behind the tree of life is universal common descent, that everything alive today is descended from that first organism. One of the interesting, um, one of the chapters here was written by a paleontologist from Germany, Gunter Beckley, and Stephen Meyer. And the primary focus was on what's called the Cambrian Explosion, uh, that supposedly happened now, again, theistic evolutionists will use the normal evolutionary time frame. So I'm going to be using that time frame and talking about these kind of things. Yeah, okay, fair, granted. Uh, the Cambrian explosion was is something that they say occurred 540 million years ago. And within a brief 5 to 10 million period of time, all almost all animal forms appeared. All the major categories of animals referred to as, a, as phyla or phy, a phylum um, That's they, a lot. They suddenly appeared. That's a lot. Yeah, it is. Hence with, the word explosion. With no hint of ancestors, no hint of transitional forms from one phylum to another. Um, they just all suddenly show up. And what they basically show is that technically that is the pattern we find in the fossil record. That's a problem. I mean, they even point out that uh, we find the first quote-unquote fossils of bacteria in rocks that are dated 3.8 billion years old we have fossils of bacteria sorry dumb question <laughs> really yes we do wow yes, okay yes, do. i'm not the scientist how either. they <laughs> i mean you, they're microscopic so how they actually sure. found those things I, that's I, I, okay I don't know. thank you for indulging the dumb question <laughs> that's still fascinating and they originally found some of them in australia and from time the earth initially formed they say four and a half billion years ago to that that's only so 700 million years later they find evidence of life. And for most of that period of time, the Earth was continually bombarded with asteroids. Uh, what they call, there's both a late and an early bombardment that would render the planet unlivable. And that second bombardment only stopped about right at 3.8 billion years ago. And that basically leaves no time for the origin of life to take place. So the bombardment, the late bombardment ends, 
and we have life. Hmm. So how much time you think it took for life to evolve? Or it had to be almost immediate. <laughs> it's narrowing the field of time right. in which it could potentially have happened, right. or at least ideally. Assuming, again, during the bombardment, mm-hmm. that's not conducive to life. No. There's so many asteroids and blowing well, things up. Well, the, the surface of the Earth would be and... near molten all the time. <laughs> wow, okay. Burn up anything. Yeah, living. yeah. Okay, I understand that. So the, after that, then you have this Cambrian explosion where all, all 20 phyla of animals suddenly appears uh, with no ancestors, no intermediate forms. And they point out several others that, for instance, um, mammals— Within 15 million years, they say, after the dinosaurs went extinct, all the various orders of mammals are in place. That doesn't leave much time. And there's no evidence of any development in those 15 million years. There are no fossils of mammals, and they just suddenly all show up. They claim to have fossils of mammals in before even the dinosaurs went extinct, but they would have been... Uh, supposedly the seed of the the trunk of the mammalian tree, if you will. Uh, but there is no evidence of how they evolved into all these various orders of, of mammals. So universal common descent, um, the fossil record is not a help. It doesn't help you at all. It presents just all kinds of problems. Almost all the major orders of birds show up at about the same time with no intermediates, no ancestors, just they're there. Okay, so when I ask you the question is theistic evolution scientifically sound? And you say resoundingly no because of the, the theories on which evolution is based, including the theory mm-hmm. of universal common descent, that all organisms can trace their origin back to this one first mm-hmm. life, and then mm-hmm. all life has branched out from it, the tree of life kind of thing. And I appreciate that image on that one. That was helpful for me to okay. both remember from high school <laughs> biology class, but also in my mind. So if that's the case, what you're saying is there there are problems with that theory because... We have not found transition fossils, right? Between any right any number of any major examples that yeah. that you have already discussed, and in addition, when we look at the geologic record, there's very little time, geologically speaking, for these organisms to have mutated mm-hmm. and developed and changed over time, mm-hmm. with with the degree of variation that we see between body types and body plans and, and this and that, and so that calls into question universal common descent if it's this tree of life this mm-hmm. body plans building on top of each other that would need even more time but we're not seeing that nope. in the fossil record that's what i'm hearing you say yeah. we don't see the time there's no time for it that's a problem yeah it is <laughs> for, for evolutionary theory uh-huh. that is a scientific problem for evolutionary mm-hmm. theory well there's another problem with um universal common descent and casey luskin has a chapter in that section just called the universal critique of universal common descent and uh, he points out an interesting example of a real difficulty with two groups of organisms that should be related by common descent, but there's no evidence of it. Okay. And this is yeah. what he calls, uh, when we consider this, this is called biogeography. Biogeography is simply biological organism in a certain geographical area. There's two types of monkeys in the world. There's what's called old world and New World monkeys. Old World monkeys are in Africa. New World monkeys are in South America. Hmm. And they're similar, but interestingly different. Hmm. Two of the orders of the New World monkeys, what are called platyrrhine monkeys, have what are called prehensile tails, 
which means they can use the tail to hook onto a branch and use the other four limbs mm. to grab things to eat. Okay? Like fingers. They can grab onto branches. Yeah. They can use their tails that way. And some old world monkeys have tails, but they're not prehensile. They're not prehensile. So they should be related. But here's the problem. They say that the New World monkeys show up in the fossil record about 30 million years ago in, in South America. Yeah, okay. But at that time, Africa and South America supposedly are 600 miles apart. They've already been splitting apart. Hence the geography thing. Geography issue. Bio-geography. Um, but they have to be related by universal common descent. So how, how do you do that? The suggestion is... That a group of these new, newly evolved platyrrhine monkeys, the New World monkeys, that just supposedly evolved from the Old World monkeys in Africa, got onto some kind of tree and brush raft and rafted across the Atlantic Ocean. The newly forming Atlantic Ocean. Newly forming Atlantic Ocean, 600 miles. That's a long way. It's a really long way. And that process would have would take at least several weeks, if not several months, Month, probably, to occur. Yeah. You're just mm -hmm. drifting. Mm -hmm. And the other problem is, is that that whatever the trees and brush that makes up this raft would have to be a pretty good size because you have to feed. There has to be food available for these monkeys for several weeks, a couple of months. That's a lot of food. And how did it not spoil? Over all those weeks and months, how could they really keep eating that stuff? Yeah. And the second thing is, the only water available is salt water, which will kill you. Yep. There's no supply of fresh water on these on these rafts. So it's incredibly implausible. But they have to come up with something. Because these two groups of monkeys on completely separate continents have to be related through common descent. But you have to create this goofy, severely improbable method to, mm -hmm. to, to accommodate that. Yeah. No, that, that's... Implausible is a <laughs> very gracious word, I think, that you chose to yeah, use. Yeah, impossible is another word, yeah. Very gracious. So I, I see what you mean now about a uh, scientific problem for theistic evolution being biogeography, mm -hmm. where the, uh, the arising or the development of platyrrhine monkeys, New World monkeys has a geographic problem. They mm -hmm. should have originated, if universal common descent is true, from the simpler body plan, the old world monkeys, that would be in Africa. But at that point, as best we understand, <laughs> Africa and the Americas would have been 600 miles apart. So yeah. how did they get there? Yeah. That, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. And so that's a scientific problem because that's when, roughly when those platyrrhine monkeys show up in the fossil record. Because there are no fossils of the platyrrhine monkeys in Africa. The only fossils we find of them are in South America. It seems like another problem. Oh, well, yeah. That's a, <laughs> that is a problem. Well, it's related whole, but different. Well, supposedly, it hadn't been around for very long for fossils to have formed. Yikes. Anyway. Okay, so significant problems. Well, today we're talking about theistic evolution. We're asking the question, is it scientifically sound? This is the second part in a three-part series. I'm talking with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ray Bolin, about it today on the Head & Heart Podcast, and I'm Paul Rutherford. We've already talked quite a bit about the science. I'd like to ask you some more about mm -hmm. universal common descent, if mm -hmm. that's okay, Dr. Yeah. Bolin, which is you keep coming back to this this idea of universal common descent, that there's problems in the fossil record uh, in terms of body plans and the amount of time for that to have arisen, for that mm -hmm. to have arose in the amount of time that we understand. According mm -hmm. to the geologic record, there's a biogeographical problem with mm -hmm. it as well. 
but these all seem predicated on universal common descent. So, yeah. I mean, could you help, you know, for the rest of us, myself included, <laughs> who don't remember that much about high school science, how, how important is universal common descent to evolutionary theory anyway? It's absolutely necessary. Um, if they're holding that uh, the first life that appeared 3.8, 3.9 billion years ago, so they say, uh, all of the life on Earth has to be descended from that. There were not several um, origins of life throughout Earth history. There was one origin of life, and everything came from that. And so everything has to be related. And that's why they use that term universal common descent. So, yeah, it's absolutely necessary. If you can't, universal common descent, if the evidence for that is extremely weak, which is what, what I'm trying to demonstrate, then evolution has a real problem. So it sounds like it's not just theistic evolution as a theory that, that you're criticizing here and that you're saying has problems reconciling the evidence. Mm -hmm. It's also evolutionary theory itself. Yeah. Universal common descent as a part of it, because it's integral to it, it sounds, what I'm hearing you say, Dr. Bowen, is that if you can't locate evidence that's mm -hmm. consistent with that theory of, of everything rising or, or originating from a single organism, single, yeah, single life, then there, you don't have an evolutionary theory. No, you don't. You don't. So that's a lot. It is a lot. That's a lot at stake scientifically. One of the other critiques here that Casey Luskin also talks about is, uh, again, it's dealing with these phylogenetic trees. We mentioned earlier uh, that these trees come about. Darwin had one in his uh, Origin of Species book where like a, there's, a, there's a base or a trunk of a tree and all the different organisms spread out so it looks like a tree. And it was reasoned that these trees initially were all based on morphology or what the animal looks like, how it's put together. And how you then you just simply compare different kinds of organisms, see which ones belong in, in this group, which ones belong in a different group. Um, and they assume that since genes and proteins are what make the organism or the body plan, that when we start analyzing and making trees, phylogenetic trees from molecules like proteins, like DNA, they should come up with the same tree. Yeah, one would hope. They're corroborating each other. All the evidence mm -hmm. is being, it's what you would hope for. Yeah. What do we, what do they find? They don't. That's they don't. fascinating. <laughs> they don't. That's fascinating. Um, in a concluding uh, statement, uh, he just quotes a number of different authors. One guy named W. Ford Doolittle, published in 1999, said, molecular phylogenists, those who make these molecular trees, mm -hmm. uh, will have failed to find the quote-unquote true tree. He says, because the history of life cannot properly be represented as a tree. The problem's gotten worse, he says. Several authors over the last 25 years are quoted by Luskin. One said that different proteins generate different trees. Another said evolutionary trees from different genes often have conflicting branching patterns. A third author wrote the problem was that different genes told contradictory evolutionary stories. And finally, a fourth author said, evolutionary trees constructed by studying biological molecules often don't resemble those drawn up by morphology. That's a problem. It's a big problem. For evolutionary theory. Um, so trying to, we've already mentioned a couple of problems with universal common descent, with these trees not matching up well. Then when they try to, once we've got discovered the molecules, the DNA, the proteins, when we try to make trees from that, they don't match the morphological trees. 
Yikes. And they, they give conflicting evolutionary stories. I find it fascinating that their scientists today are still constructing these, what do you call it, phylogenetic trees? Mm-hmm. I'm calling it the tree of life. That's probably too biblical. Also probably inaccurate. <laughs> uh, these trees of life of how life developed, and they're doing so uh, from the from the genetic level, mm-hmm. from the molecular. I think that's fascinating because they're taking what we've learned and they're applying the same idea. Hey, if, if, if all life came from one organism, what would that tree of life look like? And they're constructing it. But I can't believe it doesn't line up with the morphological one. Well, you have, you can take, uh, you can look at a single protein and you can determine its amino acid sequence and you start comparing that same protein in other forms of life. And your, your computer program will draw a tree from that, but it won't match the tree of a different protein. And it won't match the tree that comes from morphology. Yikes. So things are extremely contradictory. Okay. Well, if I'm an evolutionist, then I would say we have a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. A lot of work to do to reconcile things. <laughs> um, one last thing. It, uh, it just deals with humans uh, okay. and human uniqueness in this context. There was a chapter in the book called Evidence for Human Uniqueness. Uh, first, they started comparing the DNA of humans with the DNA of chimpanzees. Supposedly, we are most related to a chimpanzee. Uh, we supposedly had a common ancestor that probably around the time of six to seven million years ago, they say. Okay. And if you just compare the building blocks of DNA, where the sequences match up between humans and chimps, there's only about a 1.23% difference, a little more than 1% difference. However, when you start to include pieces of DNA that get inserted, pieces of DNA that get deleted, taken out, and you talk about um, locations of repeated elements, which are found throughout most organisms, as well as the extreme differences. The human and chimp Y chromosome is extremely different. Suddenly, that 1.23% difference rises to about 5% hmm. difference. It's not as close as they think. And then it's also been estimated now that humans have 60 genes... The chimpanzees do not. Just totally unique genes. Totally unique that had to have evolved only in humans yeah, over the last six to seven million years. That's another. Now, it's difficult problem. to get even one or two new genes in six to seven million years, but 60? Is that right? It, it's, again, virtually impossible by just naturalistic means. But they go on from that and they say, um, the genetic differences bring about dozens of anatomical and physiological differences. Our brains are larger and constructed differently. Our feet, necks, and location of the skull on the spine are different. And they go on to say, I think quite well, we think about, we, not chimpanzees, think about past, future. We play, dance, make music, communicate through language, use symbolic logic, write novels and poetry, use math and art, and show empathy for others. Chimpanzees don't do any of those things. Mm-hmm. So there's so many others. We do not share a common ancestor with chimps. There's not enough time for evolution to bring about all these differences. The one of the other pro- things they bring up, though, is that within this evolutionary context, the human population did not start with two individuals. Evolutionists and theistic evolutionists tend to agree that Humans evolved from a population of organisms of at least 1,000, most likely 10,000 individuals. Wow. So suddenly you have theological questions. Was there a real Adam and Eve? Okay. 
And if and most of them will say, no, there wasn't a real Adam and Eve. Right. Or maybe just two of those individuals were pulled aside, you know, from that big population. And But they would still have interbred with those that were not. Uh, the origin of sin, for instance, that becomes a problem. Um, because they would say, well, all evolution is basically selfish. It's, Richard Dawkins wrote a book called Selfish DNA, that um, DNA just looks out for itself, okay? It just reproduces and uh, keeps itself intact. Well, then all organisms are acting—what's important is your own survival and your own reproduction. So that was already selfish. So these developing humans already were sinful. It seems like it would be a further problem for evolutionary theory for humanity to— have derived from a population of a thousand individuals. Mm -hmm. So now not only do you need one or two organisms, now you need a thousand mm -hmm. that just arrived, developed through random chance. Well, they mutation? do. Well, that they, seems even more implausible. Well, they require that many individuals, they think to account for the amount of genetic variation in the human population today. Okay. It couldn't start from two, but okay. folks from the discovery Institute have done studies on that and they show, well, no, Two individuals could, could have happened. When oh, God created Adam and Eve, uh, for instance, there are about three or four different genes involved in skin color. And there are two to three forms of each of those genes. And God could have given Adam a completely different set than he gave Eve. And therefore, you have all the capability for a lot of genetic variation through a created design. But if you're relying upon just evolution, well, yeah, you need a thousand individuals to count for all that. Fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, Dr. Bullen, I have one last question. We are past time, but I'll also give you the last word. What's at stake for our listener? You've, you've, you've leveled a lot of scientific criticisms against the theistic evolution. I think it's clear to our listener that you're not a fan. You're recommending that they don't accept it either. But why not? I mean, let's say someone's really skeptical and they're like, no, most of the, sci the science agrees, Dr. Bullen. Mm -hmm. You're the one who's wrong. <laughs> I'm going to believe in this. What, what's at stake for them if they trudge on through anyway? Well, as I like to say, science doesn't say anything. Scientists do, and they all have a worldview, and they're, you're taking on a theory that has been developed by basically naturalistic worldview people. They're not, if they believe in a God, that God has no impact on their science and how they do things. Um, so you're involving yourself in a theory that has no room for a creator. It has no room for a designer. Um, and I already mentioned some of the problems showing up with human evolution about a real Adam and Eve, uh, what was the origin of sin, that would contradict Genesis 2 and 3. And so you're bringing in an awful lot of, and we'll see later, philosophical and theological problems with it. A lot of young people today are tending to adopt a theistic evolutionary approach. They're looking for less and less conflict with the culture. We use the term cultural captives. Yeah, we and do. And theistic evolution is, is a big part of that. Hmm. So what I hear you saying is to adopt a theistic evolutionary view is to effectively believe things that Scripture says is not true. Right. I mean, at the bottom line, if you're talking about the worldview of naturalism. Yeah, just, if there wasn't one Adam, why was there just one Christ? Through one man, sin entered the world, Paul says. And through one man, all sin was forgiven. Good point, Dr. Bowen. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. This has been an episode of Head and Heart. We've been asking the question, is theistic evolution scientifically sound? 
Dr. Bowen, we've been talking about that. You've added a ton to the conversation. I appreciate your contribution. Listener, please tune in. Next time, we're going to cover this topic one more time, but we're going to do it philosophically. So I'll have something to say this time. (laughs) Just kidding, because I like to study philosophy. If you have further questions about this, please check out our website, probe.org. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please do on whatever platform or app you're using to find this. And as always, I'm grateful for your listening. Dr. Bowen, thank you for joining me. Mm -hmm. And listener, we'll see you next time. Thank you.